If you're just joining us, uh, this is episode number seven in this series we're calling uh, Waiting on God, Waiting on the Lord. It's all about what it looks like and what it means to wait on God. And every one of us, in some way, are waiting for God. We're waiting for God to move. We're waiting for God to answer. We're waiting for God to come through. We're waiting for healing or breakthrough or provision or clarity, direction, restoration. Uh, We're all waiting on the Lord. And one of the big things that I hope you take away from today's message is that when we wait for God, many of us wait for God like we don't have a reason to be content until He moves. I'm going to say that again so you can take notes and just really meditate on this. A lot of us wait when we wait for God. What we're doing is we think while we're waiting, I don't have reason to be content until He moves. And that's not true. Actually, when we're waiting on God, we're not waiting for a reason to be content. That's not biblical waiting. When we're waiting on God for whatever it is you're believing in faith for Him to do, while you're waiting on Him, you're not waiting for a new reason to be content. You have more than enough reason right now to be content in Him. In other words, I don't have more reason to be content in the future. Contentment, peace, joy doesn't come attached to any future circumstances in this life. I have more than enough reason now to be content even if He doesn't even if he doesn't answer, even if he doesn't come through, even if it doesn't look at all the way I thought it would. Okay, so knowing God is enough. Knowing God is enough. Having a relationship with the Creator right this moment in time. You have a relationship with God that's more than enough in every season of life. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of what you feel, regardless of what it looks like, that's more than enough reason to be content. And we often ignore all the reasons we have in Christ to be content, because we're so focused on what the future holds, on what we're waiting out for God to do. And even if he does that, I don't now have more reason for contentment. We don't need anything else for God. We don't need God to do anything else, honestly. And sometimes when we're waiting on God with that kind of heart posture, um, there's a temptation to replace God with that thing we're waiting for. And once we get it, we're like, ah, yes, now I have a reason to be joyful. Now I have a reason to be content. And that, that thing that God brings or does in our life starts to, in our heart, replace God as ultimate. And so as we navigate today's message, uh, go with me to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, uh, pray that the internet stays strong today. We got some rain here in Florida, and so sometimes it knocks out the internet. I pray that it does not. I pray that I'm able to get everything out that I really want to, um, that I know is going to encourage you this morning. So go to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26, the legitimate, real prophet Isaiah, (laughs) because there are people on TikTok that just come in with all their trash. The real, legitimate, historical prophet Isaiah, a real Israelite who was a mouthpiece of God. He says this in verse 8 and 9, okay? I really want you to think about this. As we read this, know that this is my main point. The whole point of today's message is that God is preeminent. He's preeminent. He's ultimate in our waiting. While you're waiting, even when you get what you want, even when you don't, in every season of life, every season of waiting, God is preeminent and he's ultimate. He's supreme. And so Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8 and 9, look at what he says. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait. We wait for you. We wait for you. It doesn't say he's waiting for God to do something. It doesn't say he's waiting for God to accomplish something or give He says, we wait for you. And in the path of your judgments, that's the path of waiting. And so the way we wait is by staying in his word, by doing what he said. That's that's what it looks like to biblically wait. 
So if you're like, what does it mean to wait on God? Keep doing what he's told you to do. Don't shift away from what you know he said to do in your life. Don't shift away from the gospel. Don't shift away from the truth. Don't start building your life on human philosophy and everything else that con- contradicts the word of God in the path of your judgments. So Isaiah the prophet stands, and those whom, who receive this, they stand in the judgments of God, in the ways, in the, in the word of God. And we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. So the name of God and the remembrance of him are the desire of of the soul of his people. Your soul desires stuff. Your soul desires stuff. What should be desired most is God. Right here, we wait for you. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Uh, I didn't pull it up. I did it again. Eh, I'm gonna cry on live stream. I gotta change this real quick. I should expect to do this every time now. Uh, boom. Now you should see it. He says, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. This judgment is not negative. It's actually good. It's knowing right and wrong. It's knowing good and evil. It's knowing the difference between what is good and what is bad. The judgments of God present us that information. And so Isaiah is saying, we wait just for you, your name, to remember your ways and your heart. My, my soul yearns for you. Have you ever had a yearning in the soul? This deep longing, man. This deep, <laughs> Jesus puts me to sleep too. Nice. This deep longing and craving, almost this dissatisfaction. I can't move on until I have whatever I'm yearning for. There should be a yearning in your heart, not for what God can do, not for what he can give you, just for him, just for him. And it says in the night, meaning when he should be sleeping, he's missing out on sleep because he dare not miss out on knowing God better. Like he's, he's caught between two great options. He's like, I could sleep, but I also could meditate on God. And sleep is good, but God is better. And sleep is practical and rest is good, but oh, I can meditate on the ways of God and know him better as I'm falling asleep and even stay up because I'm knowing him better. My spirit within me earnestly, earnestly seeks you. So there's a waiting, there's a desire, there's a yearning, and there's a seeking, okay? So when you're waiting for God, here's what it looks like. There's a desire in your soul. There's a yearning for God, not just for what he can do and what he can give. And then it results in a, you know what? I'm gonna seek you. I'm gonna seek you. And we've all had mornings where we choose to put God first and we're like, why don't we do this all the time, man? I'm, I feel so good for the day. I'm ready to go. I'm emotionally stable. I met with God, like he set me up. Why don't I do this more? Those days are such good reminders that we should be seeking God as best as we can the first part of our day. Even as we're getting ready for work, even as we're snoozing our alarm nine times, we're already late. Just bring God into what you're doing. So. Ultimately, I want you to ask this. Hopefully, you ask this and answer this honestly. Do you, um, do you want God's glory most? Do you want his kingdom advanced? Do you want his gospel known? Do you want his son revealed? Do you want his church built? Do you want his name to be glorified? Do you want to know his ways? Do you want to dwell in his presence? Do you want God most?
You have to ask yourself that. And sometimes the, our flesh can deceive us into thinking we want him more than we actually do. And sometimes like we can, you know, be caught in delusion thinking, yeah, I want God, but not as much as you could, not as much as you should. Do you want God ultimately? More than his hand, do you want his face? More than what he can give you and do, do you want his presence? This is what we should want ultimately. So, so while you're waiting on God, and no one's denying that we're waiting for him, it's just how do we wait? How do we practically, biblically, faithfully wait on God? Well, when you're waiting on him, he is ultimate in your life. He's preeminent. He's supreme. He's at the top of your priorities. He's ultimate at the top of all the things you desire and, and all the things you want in life. He, he is it. He's the culmination of it all. Go with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3. What's the first thing you got to know about waiting on God today? Because we're going to talk about what it means to wait with enough. To wait with enough. We have enough. We're not wanting enough. We're not waiting for enough. We currently in this moment, in time, right now, I don't care if you feel like it. I don't care if you're aware of it. If you're in Christ, He is enough. You have enough. Even in your waiting. Lamentations 3.24 says, The Lord is my portion. He's my portion. This is what um, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they were given not land, but God. He said, I, I am your portion. You get to serve in my tabernacle. You get to minister in, in, my, in, in the temple when the temple's erected. You get to minister on behalf of the rest of Israel. They get land. They get property. They get that inheritance. And they also, I'm, I'm going to be their God, but, but Levi, I am your portion. And now Jeremiah is saying, the Lord is my portion. That's what his soul agrees with. Therefore, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. You hope in whatever you think is your portion in life. Whatever you think you're made for, whatever you think you, you exist to, to have and do, that whatever you decide, this is my portion in life. This is my lot. That's what you assign hope to. That's what you choose to trust in. And you run to that for security when things get hard. And, and Jeremiah is saying, my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in God, the God of Israel. And he's my portion. You choose what you're going to trust and hope in. The Lord is good to those who wait, who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. Notice as we navigate these, these next four passages that God is at the center of it. Not what he does, not what he accomplishes, not what he gives, just him. Just knowing God, like Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they would know you and know the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. So to seek God is what it means to wait for him. To wait for him. If you're wondering, I, I just don't know what to do in my waiting season, seek him. I just don't know what to do. I, 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 don't, I can't go any further. I'm hitting my head against the wall. I've done everything I can. Seek him. I just don't feel like he's present. I've done everything I know he's, he's called me to do. But, but have you been seeking him? I know you've been like putting your hands to work. I know you've been faithful in the church and serving and planning and welcoming people and you're a part of children's ministry. Have you been seeking him? That's what it means for the Lord to be your portion. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So there's the already and the not yet. There is the right now we have salvation in Christ, but there is the not yet, which is we don't see the full realization of that in our world. 
And we will. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This waiting quietly, sometimes it can feel burdensome. This waiting quietly and patiently and nothing's happening and I've been doing the same thing for months, it can feel like a burden at times. It can feel difficult. It can feel like, you know what would be way easier if I just abandoned God, go do what I could do, get mine, you know, progress in life, compromise my values. But waiting on God is so much better. It's so much more rewarding. Because when you're waiting for Him, we talked about this in the last episode, you're waiting for the impossible. You're saying, I'm going to sit quietly here. Like, well, like when Moses tells the people of Israel when they're standing at the Reed Sea, which often gets translated the Red Sea, when they're standing before that sea and they're freaking out, oh, God just brought us out here to die. Oh, God, you are. And Moses goes, shut up. Shh. Just wait quietly. Watch what God does. And then God splits the sea when Moses stretches out his hand. That's the idea. Is even if it means shutting down life and drowning out all the noise that's around you, you're going to wait quietly because your hope comes from him. Your trust is in him. Nothing else can happen unless God allows it to happen. God is the one who makes things happen. So it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I've got hair in my mouth. And again, that can feel like burdensome. That's why some people give up because they have an idea of what God should be doing. And when he doesn't do what they thought he, he should, they give up and they walk away. Because they didn't decide God is my portion. They said money's my portion. Success is my portion. Comfort's my portion. Convenience is my portion. They didn't say God is his portion. Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. This is the psalmist. This is David. When he's in the wilderness, running away from King Saul, after being faithful, doing everything he's supposed to, he's anointed to be the king, but he has to wait years to actually ascend the throne. And now he's in the wilderness for someone else's disobedience, for someone else's rebellion. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Again, this is what it means to wait on God is there's a thirsting that only he can quench. There's a hunger that only he can satisfy. And you won't leave his presence, you won't leave the, the, the beautiful you know, nearness of God until you get what you know he gives, which is satisfaction. Or at least an awareness of all the reasons in your life that you have to be satisfied. So we're not waiting for anything new. Oftentimes all we need to do is have God open our eyes like he did for um, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, when Elisha's you know, looking at the enemies around him and his servants freaking out and Elisha goes, God, open his eyes. Let him see what I see. And then the servant's eyes are open to see the angels that surround the enemy armies. That's the idea here. We need God to open our eyes to show us what we already have so that we don't end up focusing so much, so much on what we don't have and just, you know, minimize what we do. So my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Have you ever reached that point of just pure exhaustion? Of just a place in your life where nothing else matters? You're just like, nothing else is making me happy. Nothing else is restoring joy. Nothing else makes me want to live. I wake up and I feel like it's the same old every day. And I just want to die and all my existence is in vain. There's a, there's a fainting for God that happens at the end of yourself. When you, when you exhaust all your resources... 
when you exhaust all the possible people and knowledge and information you have access to and you realize, I, I got nothing. You've reached the point where you can say, now my flesh faints for you because I've tried everything else. And some of you are on that journey. You're exhausted because you haven't looked at him yet. You haven't sought him. You've done everything but that. Oh, I read the verse of the day. Is that really quiet time with God? Uh, you know, I play a sermon while I'm doing dishes. Is that, is, that, is that the same thing as just dwelling in the presence of God? There are ways to like encourage myself and remind myself of truth and get the word of God in me. But there's really only a couple ways to intentionally seek the face of God and drown everything else out. And that's going to look like prayer and worship. That's going to look like an open Bible in a room where no one else is. Sometimes if you want to be in a coffee shop and have that white noise, that's fine. But it's I'm seeking you. I'm not busying myself with other things while you're just a second thought. I'm not just throwing you on the background while I go and mow my lawn. You are my focus. There's only so many times in our lives where that actually happens. Where we shut down, we put our phone on airplane mode, we say, hey, I'm not accessible for the next hour. My soul thirsts for him. My flesh faints for him. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. This is like a traveler in the desert for days without water, reaching the end of himself. Exhausted. Probably near death. And the psalmist is saying, as much as that man longs for water, just a drip of water on his tongue, that's how much I long for just the presence of God. Not the information, not the data, not a church service, not a gathering, just you. Just you. Those other things have their place. But the psalmist is David in the wilderness, running from King Saul, exhausted, tired, confused, very discouraged, probably wondering, what the heck, man? What did I do? And he's saying, I just thirst for you. That's what it means to wait on God is to thirst for nothing else. You're not thirsting for money. You're not thirsting for pleasure. You're not thirsting for entertainment. I'm just throwing TikTok because I'm bored. You're thirsting for him. He says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. So this thirst and this hunger is actually sourced in a previous experience. It's not without evidence, right? The, the reason he longs for God is because he's already found him at one time. And he went, that was amazing. I want more. I want to know your love more. I want to be satisfied in your presence more. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. When you behold the power and glory of God, you get to a place like the psalmist where you go, I, I want more. Some of you haven't gotten there yet. And I would say keep pressing in and keep seeking. Keep pursuing him. He says, because, now, now watch this, this is... This statement, for us, we go, ah, I don't know, that's not realistic. Watch. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life. Think about you existing right now. You having life and breath in your lungs and being on planet Earth and being a living, breathing, conscious being. Life itself, without the love of God, really is nothing. To merely exist and not know the one who I'm made for, that's like trash. <laughs> not only that, but the love of God itself, his faithful, steadfast love for me is better than the inconsistency of my own life. I don't know if I'll be alive tomorrow. I don't know if I'll have another breath in my lungs within the next hour. I don't know if my heart will stop. Life is unpredictable, right? 
You know what isn't? The love of God. I can count on his love being what it is now, tomorrow and forever. His faithfulness toward me, his loyalty to me, his love for me, that doesn't change. That's part of the reason his love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Because the psalmist is saying, look, I've reached a point where I've existed. I've lived. I know what life is. But your love for me is better than life itself. In fact, that's what gives life purpose. That's like the substance of life is to be in the love of God. Life is being grafted into God because he is our life. And so he goes, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. Go with me to Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. Some of you guys are starting to catch it. You're really starting to get it. You've been in church your whole life. You grew up in Sunday school. You know the verses. You went to Awanas. You memorized every single thing that there is to memorize. But this has not reached deep down in your soul yet. You think it's about church. You think it's about doing. You think it's about activity and ministry. At the, at, when you strip away all that stuff, what really remains is God himself. His presence in your life, his love for you, who he is, his promises. It's just him. He's the substance of you. He's the reason you exist. In Isaiah chapter, I want to say I was reading like in the 30s last night. God tells Israel, he goes, I formed and created you for my glory. For my glory. And we often read that and go, yeah, uh, we exist to give God glory. You don't understand. It's not just giving him glory. It's actually being satisfied by his glory. It's finding contentment in his glory. It's being caught up in his glory. It's enjoying his glory. And then as I do, that gives him more glory as I walk in that. Have you beheld the glory of God yet for yourself in worship, in prayer? Have you sat there long enough for God to reach down in your heart and show you who he is? Have you sat there long enough? Or does your mind wander to all the different things you got to do today and all the bills that are piling up and what it'll look like tomorrow and if I don't do this and this won't happen, can, do you know how to shut down and bring those things to God so he can strip them away and all that's left is him? Do you know how to do that? That's one of the best disciplines you can develop. And I've not mastered it. Sometimes I sit in the presence of God for so long and it's been 30 minutes and I'm still thinking about all this stuff. I said, God, help me stop thinking about it. But what you do about those thoughts matter and the longer you press in, there's, there's a reward at the end. That's what God says, is if you seek me, I'll reward you. So Psalm 27, it says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Same psalmist. Remember the guy in the wilderness running from King Saul for doing nothing? He didn't do anything wrong. Same psalmist, the prophet in King David. He goes, I asked God for one thing. And that's the thing I'll seek after. Do you see the, the, the combination of seeking after and praying? Some of you pray, but you don't actually faithfully move towards what you believe for. And some of you, you're just pure activity. You're like, I don't need to wait on God. I'll make this happen myself. And there's no prayer involved. It's, there's a combination, man. There's a healthy balance. I'm going to pray, but I'm also going to do what I can to move forward and believe in believing what you, what you want from me. So here's what David seeks after. Meaning like he dedicates his energy towards this. He de dedicates his time towards this. His mental thoughts, his, 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 his emotional capacity. Like his being is dedicated toward going after this looking for this. 
Like Jesus says, to look for the treasure of the kingdom. Like it's buried in the ground. And <clears throat> He says, here's the one thing I want. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now in David's day, that doesn't look like a temple yet because there's no temple. There is a tabernacle. That's cool. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Uh, historically, I think right now it's um, not Gibeah. I can't think of the name. But it's Shiloh, maybe? Maybe David, because he hasn't brought it into Jerusalem yet. So the house of the Lord being the place of worship, the place where God has chosen to dwell, where his Ark is. So what he wants is this. It's five, word, five letters, D-W-E-L-L. -L. He wants to dwell, which you think of abide, to stay, to remain, to continue, to tarry. It's when Jesus puts on human flesh and tabernacles among us. This is what David wants. It's not about the location as much as it is about who's there. So the house of God is only the house of God because God is there. If God chose to leave, which he ends up doing, and he fills human bodies, because we're the temple now, right? If God decides to leave, well, now David's going to go, oh, I'll just, I just want to go where you are. I just want to go where you are. This sounds like what Peter, when Jesus looks at the disciples after the crowds leave, and they're like, this guy's weird. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Weirdo. I'm going to blog about this. They all leave, and he looks at the disciples, and he goes, do you guys want to leave too? And they go, Peter goes, where else can we go? Where else can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? In other words, we just want to follow you. Who else can we go after? We want to dwell with you. This is the heart of David. As he waits on God, and by the way, he is waiting. Like throughout most of the Psalms, David is waiting, waiting for God to crush his enemies, waiting for God to bring salvation, physical salvation, waiting for God to bring him to the throne where he was promised to rule, waiting for God to make a way back to Jerusalem, whatever psalm we find David writing, a lot of them are waiting psalms. And while he's waiting, guess what he's seeking after? He's not trying to strategize his way out. He's not trying to plan his way out and scheme. He said, I just, I really just want to go back and dwell in the house of God all the days of my life. Like, David, that sounds like a waste of time. For David, it's not. Some of you would think that. Some of you would think that if David straight up came, came to you and said, guys, how many of you just want to sit in the presence of God every day for the rest of our existence here on planet Earth? People would be like, nah, I got better things to do. And David would go, you guys are crazy. Because look, we can go there and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Now things have changed functionally because now we're the temple. We have the spirit of God wherever we go. God has filled us with his very presence so that there's no location to go to meet God. When Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, look, all who worship God are going to worship him in spirit or in truth. It's not about this mountain. It's not about this valley. It's not about, it's in spirit and in truth. So David doesn't have the privilege we have in the new covenant to be filled with the Spirit, to go where God is, to be His temple. That's not a reality yet. 
and David knows where God is, I can gaze upon his beauty. Some people can't appreciate beauty because they're trying to rush to the next thing. You know what I mean? There are some people that aren't made for art galleries. They're not made for museums. They're made for trampoline places. They're made for like amusement parks. They're made for, you know, Disney World. Let's go to the next thing, next thing, next thing. The people who are like in, in museums, like they're made for like absorbing art. They're made for like enjoying uh, the artistic beauty and ability of people. Like those people, they're not trying to move on to the next thing. They're enjoying and gazing upon. They know how to appreciate beauty. And I think the, ch I won't say the church as a whole, but a lot of us have lost our childlike wonder. We've lost our ability to just gaze and enjoy and, and just soak in the beauty of God. We don't know how to appreciate the glory of God anymore because it's all about the next thing. It's all about the next plan. It's all about, well, now that you've done this and I can check that off, God, you got one more thing to do and then there's one more after that and we can never enjoy. We can never just enjoy and go, you're enough right now. Even if you do nothing else for the rest of my life, right now, you're enough. You're enough later, you're enough 10 years ago, you're enough for all eternity. I'm not waiting for a reason to be content. Do you know how to gaze upon the beauty of God? Not with your physical eyes, not yet but with your spiritual eyes, to sit there and meditate on his truth, to think about who he is, to pray the, tr you know, the scriptures back to God in a way where that informs your prayers. Do you know how to gaze upon his beauty? Until that starts to leak out of you and people see his character in your life, do you know how to do that? Or are you so impatient and so impulsive and just ready to get to the next thing that God's like, hey, I want you to dwell with me now. You're like, okay, I dwell, let's go. He's like, no, no, dwelling is not about a time frame. It's not about checking it off so you can move on. Dwelling, abiding, is actually about a lifestyle. We need to learn how to develop a lifestyle of abiding. Psalm chapter 34, go with me to Psalm 34. The psalmist, once again, because most of the psalms are just so God-centered. It's like, my life is trash. I'm in turmoil. I want to end my life. But God, you're amazing. And it's okay to be there. It's okay to admit, like, I don't even know if I should be existing right now. I don't even know if life is worth living or if I want to wake up today or if I'll just be depressed. It's okay to admit these things to God, but will you stay centered on him and let him heal those areas? Let him free you from those ways of thinking. Let him pull those things back so you can see what matters most. Psalm 34, verse 8 through 12. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. The problem is we want other people to taste and see, and then I'll just ride the coattails of their relationship with God. <laughs> I'll just kind of hang on to them while they're seeking after God. When God invites me personally to come and know him. So to taste implies there's, there's an engaging of the senses, right? There's a seeing, right? You can taste, some people taste of the truth and they go, ugh, tastes like broccoli. Other people taste the truth and go, that's good. I want more, I want more. That's what David has said throughout the Psalms we've read. I just want more. Jessica, thank you so much for the gift, sister. You are awesome, I appreciate that. What a blessing. And that's, that's the idea though, is to taste and see. You, you, you begin to develop a palate for the things of God. 
your, your, your taste, your spiritual taste buds start to adapt to what matters. Start to adapt to what matters most. You start to develop a love and a desire like, I have a hunger. Like, because we look at the psalmist and we go, how do you get to a place where you can say, I long for God? Like, I'm not there yet. I don't even want to open my Bible most weeks. How do you get to a place where you say, I thirst for God? I'm too busy stressing about whether tomorrow I'll be alive or whether my kids will even want to hang out with me. I can't really thirst. How do you get there? Well, he first, he's tasted and he's seen. God is good. What does he do with that? Well, he chooses to take refuge in him and he goes, hey, blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. This is what like Jesus says to the woman who goes, blessed are the breasts who fed you. And he goes, kind of weird. Blessed are those who do the word of God. This is the idea. Blessed are those who take refuge in God by doing what he says, by waiting on his ways. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you, you his saints. There's an invitation to fear God. It's not a guilt trip thing. It's not a fear tactic. It's not like fear God or you're going to die. It's guys, fearing God is awesome. Like that's what it means to take refuge in him is you go, your ways are higher than mine. I submit to yours. I surrender, not because I'm afraid of hell, but because I see how wonderful you are and I love you. Like God actually says in Isaiah to the nation of Israel, he goes, I created you. I formed you. I love you. I love you. That's what he says to his people. I love you. Come and fear me. It's best for you. It's not a terrifying father scenario where I'm going to beat you if you don't. It's, hey, I want what's best for you. Come under my wing and I'll actually protect you. I'll keep you from the things that look good that you could go after and it'll kill you. I'll keep you from that. I'll keep you from the sin that's eating away at you. I'll keep you from the depression that keeps coming back. I'll keep you. Fear the Lord. Those who fear him have no lack. And then you read this and go, I don't know. I lack a lot of things. I lack joy. I lack financial provision. I lack security. I lack confidence. I lack identity. I lack value. There's a lot of things that you don't even know you have access to because you haven't sought God long enough to experience it. There are a lot of things sitting on the shelf of your heart and really your Christian walk that you have access to right now that you choose. Well, you might not be intentionally choosing to not access them, but by not choosing to seek God. You're choosing not to access what he has for you. And so fearing God is a healthy respect, reverence, admission of who he is and what he can do, but it's not a terror. A lot of people biblically define fear of God as like, be terrified. That's not for the people of God. That's for the enemies of God to be terrified. Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, stand in admission of what he can do. And here's what you need to know. Here's what God can choose to do. God can just, he has, he's the only one who has authority to destroy the soul. No one else has that. But when you're his child, the fear that he'll do that to you is no longer appropriate to your life because you're in his son and you're righteous. So there's a, we've talked about the fear of the Lord in, in past episodes, but know that there is a reverence, a respect, not a terror, not I'm horrified, you might strike me down. It's out of love. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. But I don't just deny the fact that he's sovereign and all-powerful. That also is a part of it. You have no lack when you fear God. This is exactly what Jesus touches on in Matthew 6.33. If you just seek first my kingdom, everything you need will be added to you. 
And we're like, I don't know, everything though? He's like, no, actually all these things that you need, God will add it to your life. Meaning, you can go after it on your own and you'll never get it because it has to be added to you. You can't achieve it, you can't gain it, you can't work for it. Someone else has to add that to you. And the only way it's gonna be added to you is when you seek his kingdom. That's the idea here. If you wanna live with no lack, and we're not just talking about financially, emotionally, relationally, we're talking about everything God knows you need to live a life of godliness, to live a life of really the fullest life he has, he'll give that to you if you live in the fear of the Lord. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Not actual lions, but like metaphorically, those who have power and authority and influence and pretty much rule the jungle, you might say, those who are enemies of God, running the nations. Yeah, they suffer want and hunger even with everything they have access to. But those who seek the Lord, you know what they lack? Nothing. Nothing. The problem is, we don't seek Him. Because I have so many needs in my life, I have to tend to those. I don't have time to sit in the presence of God. I have so much stress on my plate from all the things that are piling up, and I gotta handle the yard and the family and the neighbors and the job and the, the, the finances. I gotta handle all these things. I don't have time to sit in the presence of God. And the, the ironic thing is, by choosing not to seek Him, you're just running on a hamster wheel, doing a lot, exercising a lot of energy, exhausting yourself, going nowhere. If you just turn around and sit with Him and prioritize Him and seek first His kingdom, you'll find that all the things you are going after, the things He knows you need, He'll add to you. And it doesn't always look the way you want. It doesn't. It doesn't always look exactly the way that I predicted. And, but there's a call to fear Him. There's a call to fear Him. So, when you taste and see that He is good, some of you have had these moments, you're like, it wasn't what a pastor told me. It wasn't what my parents taught me. It wasn't what Awana's instilled in me. Like, I personally sat at the feet of Jesus long enough to realize for myself, He's good. You don't have to tell me that. You don't have to try and convince me. You can tell me otherwise. You're not gonna convince me out of it. He is good because I've experienced his goodness. Joshua, thank you, brother, for your gift. You guys are crazy this morning. No more, I'm cutting you off. <laughs> Stop it. Just enjoy the truth. Thank you, guys. Uh, he is good. And, and we, we, we switch that up and we go, and we say he's good, but what we really mean is what he gives us is good. What he does is good. That's not what the psalmist means. It's not focused on what God does or gives. It's just on who he is. Even if God stood back and outside of time, did nothing else for us, you know what he would still be? He'd still be good. If God never added anything else to your life and he let you suffer want and you, 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 know, you starved your way to death, and he never added, he would still be good. Because the circumstances of my life, they don't determine to me whether God is good or not. God experiences or encounters me and you. You've, you've seen it. He encounters us even through the worst situations to where we're looking around going, this is a living hell, but he's so good. There's, and it's not because of what's going on around me. It's because of who he is.
Let me take you to Psalm 23. So that's the first point. I know I spent 45 minutes on it. We're going to, hopefully these next two points will be like 10, 15 minutes, okay? Because I know you guys got places to be and you can't just sit in the Word of God all day like, like a lot of people. So the first point was God is preeminent in our waiting. That means he's ultimate. That means he's first. That means he's priority. That means he's supreme. That means he's the center. And if he's not, someone's got to break it to you. You're not waiting on God like you keep bragging to people. I'm just waiting on the Lord. When's the last time you sat and just prayed? Wow, I'm, just, I'm waiting, so I got to keep moving. M waiting includes activity, but it's not only doing things with your hands. Waiting is primarily sitting and praying and fasting and reading the word while I do the other things. While I tend to my job, my family, and, and do the other tasks of my life. It's not either or, it's, it's both. And the second point is this. Not only is God preeminent and ultimate in our waiting. God is enough in your waiting. You might need to say that out loud a few times before it really starts to sink in. God is enough in our waiting. God is enough in our waiting. In all seasons, in all circumstances, in all different mental slums we find ourselves in, in all the spiritual slums we find ourselves in, in all the mistakes, He is still enough. That's why the same psalmist can say in chapter 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. What does he conclude? Well, he goes, since God is my shepherd, I shall not, I will not want. I will not find myself wanting. As if to need a reason to be content. That doesn't mean you can't want anything else. I just want God to direct my desires. I want God to direct the things that I want and help me to want the things that are good. Some people take this so far where they're, they're afraid to want anything else. They're afraid to have any other desires. They're afraid to ask God for anything else. God, I have financial need. Would you come through? God, I'm really sick this week. Can you heal me? God, my sister doesn't know you. Can you set her free and bring her into your salvation? We're afraid to ask for these things because we think, well, the Lord is my shepherd. I should want nothing. This is talking about living in want. And like, I'm needy. And that's like living as a needy person. Like, God, I won't be content until you. But to have a request is not that. You can have a request and go, God, even if you don't, you're still enough. So the Lord being our shepherd, that's the key. And we're going to go through Psalm 23, and I want you to really, really take, no take note of what David has figured out that some of us have not. So we go, yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. That means he's leading He's not just over your soul, he's over your life. I shall not want. He's guiding me, he's leading me, he's caring for me, he's providing for me, he's protecting me. Look at, all, look at what else he does. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sometimes the grace of God can feel like that, that um, the force of gravity just kind of causing you, oh, why am I sitting down? I'm, I'm making you lay down. Because you've been working yourself tirelessly and it's time that you just lay down. Sometimes we work ourselves into stress and exhaustion and depression and overwhelmedness. And God knows, hey, you know what we need to do? 
We need to shut down, lay down, lay down. Think what I tell my dog and she doesn't do it. Except you have the opportunity to do it. When he tells you to lay down, when he tells you to stop striving, when he tells you to stop and meditate on his ways and sit in his presence and realign your life with his word, you do it. But God, I scheduled a conference that you, I told you to sit in my presence. God, I really need to go to the grocery store today, the pantry. I, I told you to sit, lay down, lay down, and enjoy these green pastures. It don't look green, God. Just because it doesn't look green doesn't mean it is, isn't. The fact that it's green essentially means, I would say, that the, God is present. Sometimes life looks like green pastures. Sometimes it doesn't. But I don't need it to look a certain way in order to be able to lie down. This is just the fact that the shepherd is going, hey, lay down because I know that you'll lay down here since it looks more comfortable. And you go, well, I'll settle in. Sometimes God is very strategic about that. He knows that we won't lay down unless we find ourselves in a comfortable environment and things have settled down. He's like, hey, now's your chance. Lay down. Just shut it all down. He leads me beside still waters. This is the tranquil part of following our shepherd. Everything's calm and beautiful. And nothing's wrong. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now remember, all of this comes right after, hey, because he's my shepherd, I won't live in need. I won't. I won't live in want and live like a needy person waiting for a reason to be content. I won't be wanting for anything more than what I have in Christ. Which again, doesn't mean I don't have other desires. It means I'm not waiting for anything else. Even if he doesn't, I'm good. In fact, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That's why he's enough. He leads me beside still waters. This is not the sheep discovering the still waters by themselves and be like, look at the place we found. This is the result of following the shepherd is that you find yourself by green pastures. This is not the person working themselves into green pastures and being like, finally, I stayed up till 2 a.m. for 20 years straight. I have every disease known to man, but at least my financial you know, stability is here and I can lay down in green pastures. This is the shepherd saying, hey, because you're following me, I brought you to these green pastures. Because you're following me, I brought you beside still waters which assumes you're following him as your, as your shepherd. If you're not, you probably won't find the still waters he has for you. If you're doing it your way and doing it the way your mama told you, not the way God says, you probably won't find the green pastures he has for you. He's the one who restores your soul. Not your efforts, not influence, not money. Not all the convenience in the world. You get none of it. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So this is not, go discover what righteousness looks like. So he's like, he's like, hey, I mapped it out for you. I gave you a treasure map. It's very clear. Do this, don't do this. Look at my commands. Look at my laws. Look at my statutes. I've laid out the path of righteousness and my son walks that perfectly. That's why Jesus is our shepherd. And it's for his name's sake. So God says, hey, follow me and you'll live righteous. When you don't follow me, you won't live righteous, which is fine. I'll bring you back in. But the reason he brings us on the path of righteousness is for his name's sake. It's for him to be glorified. It's for him to be known. 
It's for you to see him and know him better. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. So this is not the sheep that wandered into the valley of the shadow of death. This is the shepherd saying, hey, come with me. And we're like, that looks scary. <laughs> that looks very scary. It looks terrifying. I'm not going in there. And he's going, trust me. I know it looks a certain way. And part of it is because it actually is that way. But I'm with you. So you don't need to fear evil. You don't need to fear the shadow of death. This is the appearance of death. It's the valley of it. And it's going to look a certain way, but guess what? I'm with you. That's all that matters. Is he with you beside still waters? Yeah. Is he with you beside green pastures? Yeah. Is he leading you in righteousness? Yes. Whether that's in, by still waters, green pastures, or through the valley of the shadow of death. In all the different seasons and circumstances of life, regardless of what it looks like, is the shepherd leading you? That's what matters. Is he the one causing this decision I'm making? Or am I stepping into a business decision he didn't ask me to? Is he leading me into this relationship or am I just so lonely I'm willing to go for anyone? Is he leading me into this or have I just reached the point of no return and I'm just giving myself over to things that I know compromise values? Is he with me? That's what matters. His rod and his staff, the psalmist says, oh, they comfort me. The rod, sometimes it's used for training and correction and rearing. Other times it's this comforting presence. The staff, man, it just shows the capability of the shepherd. Is God enough while you're waiting? Yeah. If he's leading you, it's so much easier to remember that he's enough. If he's not leading you and you're doing your own thing out there on your own, out there strategizing without him, making all the connections you have, not even including God in it, and you're going against his will, it's hard to remember that he's enough because he's not leading you. Your eyes aren't on him. Your eyes are on your own ambition and success. And I'll get to that place for my family and I'll get this finally. And I've been spending my whole life grinding for this. Keep your eyes on him and you'll be aware of how content he makes you. Man, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God, what are you doing bringing me into enemy territory? That's a good question, right? God, what are you doing allowing enemies to come into my safe space? This is my safe bubble. It's 2023. And I'm offended by everything. Why are you letting enemies in? Right? He goes, well, regardless of how many enemies are around, I was going to prepare a table for you. I wanted to prepare this table so we could have a feast. I wanted you to enjoy being with me. I wanted you to eat with me. This is Jesus grilling fish, broiling fish, whatever he's doing over the fire, right next to the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. And his disciples are like, is that him? I don't know, go ask him. It's him, don't ask. It'll be weird. We have to think, just, just go over there. And Jesus goes, come on boys. I got fish. I got bread and made breakfast. And he's prepared a meal. He's prepared a meal for his disciples. That's the idea. Or Jesus in the upper room, the Passover meal. And he's going, I have been waiting <laughs> to share this meal with you guys. I'm about to die. And they're like, what? 
This is the idea. He prepares a table before us. Regardless of who's around, whether it's in the valley or whether it's in the green pastures or whether it's by the still waters, anytime the shepherd says, hey, set up a picnic here. Here, everything's on fire. Yeah, right here. There are archers sitting in those trees pointing their arrows at us. Yeah, right here. Temptation surrounds me. I don't even know if I want to keep moving forward. Right here. Park it. It's time to eat. You anoint my head with oil. And my cup overflows. The cup overflowing here. You know what it means? You're not just satisfied. You have so much more than enough that other people can come under your overflowing cup and get stuff for themselves. It's the idea of people seeing fruit on your life and they're seeing it going, can I have some? And you have more than enough to spare. And you're going, yeah, taste and see that he is good through my life. Come and see the character of God. Come and see his patience. Come see his mercy. Come see his grace demonstrated through my life. I, I'm so satisfied. I have more than enough for you guys. This is the person who's not hoarding, right? And living with a scarcity mindset. You can't have any. This is Acts chapter 2. Where the disciples and all the, all the followers of, of Jesus who had just turned to Christ, they're bringing their extra property money and going, hey, apostles, use it for whoever has need. These are the people who go, hey, the shirt off my back, anything I have extra, come and have it. This is the overflowing contentment God offers you. It doesn't mean I have a storehouse full of all this stuff. It means I'm looking at what I have as more than enough. It's, it's the difference between having and qualifying, right? So I can still have the same amount. I can have $50 and I can look at that as not enough to pay my bills or I can look at that as more than enough to get me a meal and bless someone else with a meal. It's a difference of perspective. So the cup overflowing is a reality. It's absolutely a reality. He anoints our head with oil. This is what David says. My cup overflows with the anointing and the satisfaction and the provision of God. And even when it doesn't look like enough, I look at it differently. Even when I look at this gift that's been hiding on the shelf, this spiritual gift God gave me for teaching or hospitality or compassion or faith or whatever it is, and I'm going, my whole life I've looked at that as not enough, so I haven't touched it. Now that I'm satisfied in Christ, I'm looking at it going, whoa, I think you could do something with that. And he's going, yeah, bring it to me. Let me make that overflow for the people around you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now watch. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ever, ever, ever. That's what we saw in what? Psalm 27, right? Four chapters after this. You're going to say, I just want one thing, God. Like one thing. Not even safety from Saul, not even going back to Jerusalem, not even like going back to a house. I just want to dwell in your presence. Same idea, same heart. Surely goodness, mercy shall follow me. But I thought you were following the shepherd. You are. And as you follow him, he sovereignly ordains that certain things follow you. Grace, mercy, goodness, his love. All the days of your life. This is the promise for the people of God. Okay, here's the promise. 
that we as his children get to dwell in his house forever. It's not a physical location. It's not a geographical temple. Now we are the actual household of God. So when you're like, where's the house of God? We are the house of God built on Christ as the ultimate cornerstone and as the firstborn. He's the one that made way for us to be children. So now we are the household of God. We are the family of God. Let me take you to Philippians chapter 4. So is God enough while you're waiting? He is. Does the enemy want to lie to you and distract you from that? He does. The enemy wants you to think, I don't know, like I keep hearing God's enough. You don't feel like it. You don't have to feel like it for it to be true. It's true whether you feel it or not, right? Philippians 4, we have Paul saying pretty much the same exact stuff, man. Same exact stuff. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, look, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, after a while, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, which the opportunity was to show that concern. Now an opportunity has arisen for the church in Philippi to show their concern for Paul. And he goes, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Okay, so here's what I'm about to show you. There's a difference between having a need and being in need, living with this heart posture that says, I am fundamentally in need. It's where you identify with your needs so much that that becomes who you are. I am needy, right? So I'm not in need. I just have needs that he's more than enough willing and capable of filling. And so it was not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am through the valley, by the green pastures, by still waters, around my enemies, in every situation, I've learned to be content. So when we talk about, hey, in your waiting, he's enough. Essentially, all we're saying is you should be content. I'm not even going to be like, hey, you can be, buddy. I'm like telling you it is appropriate for your Christian life. Contentment is the most appropriate thing for your heart now that you're in Christ. Now that you belong to him and you're a child and you're forgiven and you have the spirit of God and you're righteous and he, he's your father forever. Now that that's true, you, the most appropriate thing for your life besides love is contentment. You don't need anything else. You don't. I don't. You can be content and you should be. You should be. I know how to be brought low. So Paul has learned, see this keyword? He learned contentment. S -s -s you just told me I should be content. Now you said I have to learn contentment. I can have all the money in the world at my disposal, right? And I cannot know what to do with it. I might mismanage it, I might, I might abuse it, I might waste it and squander it. I need to learn how to enjoy and properly manage what I have. Contentment is like a resource. God has given you this thing called, hey, contentment, and it's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. So because I know Him, I have more than enough reason to be content. The problem is, 
I have not yet learned all the reasons I have to be content. I need to know Christ better. I need to learn his ways. I need to know his heart. I need to enjoy his presence. I need to know his love deeper. I need to meditate on the gospel. And as I do, my awareness of how content I can be grows. I start to learn contentment, which is just simply me becoming more aware of all that I have in Jesus. I become more and more, I learn the contentment that I have reason for in Christ. It's learned. You have access to all these reasons. You just haven't learned it. You have to grow up in Christ. You need to study. You need to sit. You need to meditate. You need to seek. He says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing. Facing what? Enemies, hunger, barrenness, wilderness? No, plenty. You learn the secret of facing plenty? Usually when you put the word facing in front of something, it's like a kind of opposition. I had to face that. I had to face that giant. I had to face... But he makes plenty, like abundance, having more than enough. That's something Paul had to face. He knows how to face hunger. Now that makes sense. I, I know what it, you know. I know what he means when he says I, I learned how to face hunger. Abundance. There's one of those words again where it's like, Paul. I don't think I don't think you learn how to face abundance. He'd go, hold on. And I know how to face need. Lacking plenty, scarcity, abundance, starving, hunger, having plenty. He knows how to face it all. So whether he has more than enough, or whether he has barely enough, or whether he has just enough, emotional capacity, financial provision, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, specifically here it's finances, and like him like having food or having clothing or having money to go out and get a meal, he's learned the secret of facing everything. He goes, I can do all things through him. Who's him? The one who strengthens Paul. Who strengthens Paul? God. Specifically Christ. So, essentially Paul's saying, look, if you're wondering how to face every situation in life, abundance, lack, scarcity, confusion, like I've learned how to be content in it all. Being shipwrecked, being stoned, not stoned, but like pelted with rocks, you know, being executed. Um, I've, I've learned how to be beaten. I've learned how to be imprisoned. I've learned how to be yelled at and mocked and persecuted and driven out of cities. I, I've also learned how to have so much and how to have just abundance in these visions. He's going, I, I know how. And you go, tell me, Paul, tell me. I need to know. You just do all things through Christ. What's he saying? He's saying, do all things through the shepherd. He's saying, do all things with the power and the presence and through the ability of the shepherd. Essentially, Paul is just looking back at Psalm 23 and going, he's the good shepherd David talked about. And I just follow him. I just look at him. I just focus on him. I just continue meditating on him and learn from him and study him and love him. I just seek his presence. 
I do all things through him. And so, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Is that true? Absolutely. So why does Jesus come in in John 10 and go, hey, I'm the good shepherd? Because he's claiming very, in just one out of a hundred different ways. He already does. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. The eternal word emanating from the Father. So, here's how you face contentment. Or how, here's how you face everything and be content. You learn contentment. Don't live in need. Don't let your needs start to form your view of God or inform the way you see God or inform the way you see life. Don't identify with your needs as if you are a needy person. You have more reason to be content than you have to live in need. Whether you're brought low or you're abounding in every circumstance, you can do all things through Jesus who strengthens you. All things. Not some things, not most things, not the things you really desire, all things. Which means everything he calls you to, the pastures, the valley, having a table right in front of your enemies, wherever it is. God is enough in our waiting. God is enough. The last point today is gonna to be found in 2 Corinthians 12. So not only is God preeminent in our waiting, not only is God enough in our waiting, but watch this. God gives enough in our waiting. God gives enough. Um, any of my mods, do me a favor. There's a guy here, Yosamar, who's saying Jesus is not God. Can you find my video, 55 Reasons the Bible Teaches Jesus is God on YouTube? And then post that link in the chat, because I, I can't do that right now. That'd be helpful. Just so he has a resource to look at. Because I... Uh, it's when you have 55 clear biblical passages and reasons why Jesus is God, I think at that point you're pushing against <clears throat> pushing against the scriptures. So someone find that, just YouTube it. That'd be helpful. Second Corinthians 12, this is God giving enough. Not just God being enough, God is um, giving enough. It says, Second Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So when you go up, he's like, I know a man who had great revelations and visions. He pretty much, you know, shows his hand in verse seven and it's like, Paul, we know it's you, buddy. He goes, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So hold on. There's a, a messenger sent by the opposer. This messenger, his purpose is to harass. At least that's the, the enemy's purpose is to harass Paul. God has a different purpose for this thorn, doesn't he? This thorn actually keeps him from becoming conceited. So, this messenger, this thorn, that Paul is saying, take it away, 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 take it away. God's going, it's keeping you from becoming conceited. You had a lot of revelation. You had a lot of insight and understanding and visions. I want you to stay humble. 
it's best for you to stay humble and not walk in pride. So, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, hey, my grace is sufficient. Sufficient. For you. Not just sufficient in general, specifically for you, Paul. What's sufficient? What's enough? His grace. Probably shouldn't highlight that with the same color as what I used for like Satan. (laughs) My grace is sufficient for you. My power. Why? Why is God's grace sufficient for Paul to face what he's going through? Because God's power is actually made perfect or manifest or revealed clearly in the weakness of Paul. Weakness here is pretty much the best way to define weakness. You can just run to the Greek, I guess, but contextually, the best way to define weakness here is anything that Paul has no power or authority to change or do. He can't change his situation, and he'll go on to list all the different hardships and and persecutions and calamities and weaknesses. Weakness is simply something I am unable to change or do anything about. Sickness, uh, financial crisis, being cornered, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, a temptation um, that won't leave. I can't change the temptation coming. just keeps coming, but I can face it. So God's grace is enough for Paul. So God gives what? What does God give? God gives more than enough grace. In everything that you face, if you simply ask, God says, hey, I'll give you enough of what you need to face what you're going through. My grace is enough. The undeserved favor and kindness of God, the power of God to face it, it's perfected in our weakness. And then Paul will go on to say, therefore I will boast about all the weaknesses I have so that God's power can rest on me. There's something about admitting weakness that like makes way for the power of God to move through your life. A prideful, self-righteous, arrogant vessel probably won't be used to demonstrate the power of God because that guy's just going to take all the credit. The people God chooses, according to 1 Corinthians 1, is he chose the weak. He chose the foolish. He chose the debased. He chose the rejected. He chooses that which is not to do things that are impossible. The humble vessel, the vessel that admits I can do nothing The breath in my lungs comes from you. I am weak. And I'm just aware of how weak I am without you. And God goes, that's a vessel I can really, really use to magnify my glory because they won't rob me of my glory. God gives enough in our waiting. Let me take you to, um, let me take you to the the last verse of the day. You're all familiar. You saw this in the finale of Chosen Season 3. If you haven't watched it, I just spoiled it for you. Not that it spoils anything, because you have the Bible right in front of you. Matthew 14. Everyone hug the like button. Jump on the internet and just give it a hug. Hug your computer. Hug your phone. Matthew 14. This is what I mean when I say God gives enough in our waiting. You guys think resources, physical provision, you know, finances, food, clothing. I'm thinking direction. I'm thinking joy. I'm thinking hope. I'm thinking peace. I'm thinking contentment. 
Everything God, thank you James for dropping that. Jesus is God. Um, so, I don't know if he's here anymore, but Yosemar probably left. Maybe he didn't. But Yosemar, there's your uh, link. It's just a four hour video. The oneness of God, the Akkad of God. Um, it simply means uh, a complex unity. I'll say it like that. A complex unity. So, go watch that video. Matthew 14, it says, When Jesus heard this, um, that John the Baptist died, he wanted to be alone, so he left in a boat to a desolate place by himself. You ever tried to be alone, but people won't leave you alone? That's what happens to Jesus here. Look at how he handles it. When the crowds heard of it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Imagine trying to be alone and just people by the hundreds, by the thousands, are following you on foot, watching, walking at the pace you are as you're going across the water. He's going, at least I would be going, oh my. But Jesus doesn't respond like that. When the crowds heard it, they followed him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Kind of wanted to be alone. <laughs> That's fine. He had compassion on them. Mm. He didn't respond with impatience and anger. He had compassion and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came and said, hey, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Just send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Otherwise, they'll like, you know, they'll faint along the way. It's too far. But Jesus said, hey, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? They said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. Key word. Only. Key word for how you're looking at your life and your gifts and your experiences and your knowledge, you're going, I only. But God. And he said, bring them here to me. If I listed out for you all the onlys in my life, you would think it's laughable that I'm live right now on this screen teaching the Bible. It makes no sense. Makes no sense. So I, I could spend all my day, all day today, just going through all the onlys I have. I only have this. I only went through this. I only had this much education. I only have this in my family. But it's not about what you only have. It's about what God can do with it. We only have five loaves. And he said, bring them here to me. This is the invitation of God to take what you have and to bring it to him in faith. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked, there's a lot of stuff going on here that I'm not going to break down today. Just the simple truth that Jesus makes something small more than enough. How much more can he take us and make us what we need to be for our calling, for the people we're going to impact, for the people we're called to serve and minister to, for the families we're supposed to raise up and train and disciple, for the things we're supposed to start, for the books we're supposed to write, for the online ministries we're supposed to start, you know, to get going. What Jesus can do through us. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. He thanked God. He doesn't go, Ugh. he thanks God. I really want to encourage you guys to thank God for what you have. Take time right now. 
like while the stream is live and just think through all the things in your life, not just physically and worldly, materially. Think about all the things God has done for you, all the things, the family members, the relationships you have, the gifts, the experiences, the opportunities. Thank God for that. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples. This is key. This is how the kingdom spreads when Jesus leaves. He entrusts the gospel to his disciples, fills them with the spirit, and sends them out. This is a small picture of what they will eventually do. They will bring the bread of life to the nations. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus doesn't take it and go, I don't need you guys, go sit down. You already said we only have, you doubted me, you didn't have faith, so you know what? I don't need you. He goes, hey, come here. Boys, you two Judas, you guys pass out these, this food to the crowds. You don't have to use us, but I want to. That's the idea. They all ate, and they were what? What were the crowds? They were physically satisfied. John 6 will... Um, I think recount the fact that Jesus will tell the, the, the crowds because the crowds will come to Jesus the next day after eating and they'll go, we found you. And he'll go, you're only looking for me because I fed you. Don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that, you know, amounts to eternal life. And they took up the 12 baskets full of the pieces, broken pieces left over. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. You're looking at 15 to 20,000 people. So here's the idea. Jesus satisfies crowds of upwards of 20,000 people with baskets full of broken pieces left over by taking what the disciples qualified as only five pieces of bread and two fish. But what happens is when it's in his hand, and his disciples get to play a role in that. They have a responsibility, right? They have a job to play in the miracle. Did God need them? No. Did God use them? Yes. Did God's grace empower them to be a part of the miracle so that it multiplied in some capacity through their hands? Absolutely. Did they know that would happen? They didn't need to. But they fed the crowds and those crowds were satisfied. When you're waiting on God, and you minimize what you have available to you. And you discount what a small step of obedience God's calling you to do. You know, post your first video on TikTok about Jesus. Um, start the Bible study with just the two people that you know love God in your neighborhood. Um, go to your church and start serving in children's ministry even though you just started going there last week. And you have one year of college education at a local college. God is calling some of you to just do one simple task. One act of obedience as you're waiting on Him. And the reason some of us don't do that is because we assume we know how it will work out. Well, God, what I'm waiting for and what I'm waiting for you to do, it has nothing to do with that small thing you told me to start. Start writing a book. You know, go and reconcile a relationship between me and my, my distant father. What does that have anything to do with what I'm believing for you to do in my life? And God's over there going, you don't have to know the results of your faithfulness. You don't have to know how your obedience will work out. 
You don't have to know how it relates to what, what you're believing for. You don't need to. Do you trust God enough to move forward? And if he said to do it, that's enough reason to do it. Isn't that enough reason to move forward? And like that one act of obedience, what you're going, it's only, and God's going, but if you put it in my hands and acted on it in faithfulness, you have no idea what I could do and what I could set off for a generation with that. You have no idea. Some people are going to evaluate themselves into the grave. They're going to spend all their life just overanalyzing everything they could have done and everything they could have used and everything they could have put to work and they won't do anything because they're just going to overanalyze themselves to the grave. Not doing what they know God has confirmed over and over and over to do. So while you're waiting on God, while you're waiting faithfully for the king to come back, to do what you're believing him to do, to answer your prayer, to bring the healing... Do the small thing he's told you. Bring what you have and lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, I know I only have this much education. I know only, I only have these gifts that I'm aware of, but I want to put them to work. I know I'm looking at it as only, but in your hands, what could it become? You have no idea. You have no idea. What the all-powerful God can do with a simple act of obedience or surrender or generosity how that multiplies. But I would venture to say, if you just do it, you'll be very surprised. Some of you know exactly what God's calling you to do. You don't need confirmation anymore. You've prayed, you've fasted, you got godly counsel, you've gotten the wisdom, and he's made it abundantly clear. Do it. Be faithful. While you're waiting on him, know that God is preeminent in our waiting. He's enough in our waiting and he gives enough he gives enough he makes it enough in your waiting so be faithful with what you have and don't discount it don't minimize it don't sit on it like the parable of the talents oh, I was just afraid you you weren't afraid if you were you would have put it to work and at least threw it in the bank so if you guys don't know this is Above Reproach Ministry, and you can find everything about this ministry, find out about everything in this ministry by going to AboveReproachMinistry.com. You can find out all, uh, all the sermons we've done, our online church. You can join right now, completely free, just join. Um, we're in there all the time. In fact, we're going to be in there in about 30 minutes talking about Jesus and praying and growing and fellowshipping. Um, there's a ton of free resources we have. We have online devotionals, free study devotionals. We have free skills courses you could take to learn how to read the Bible. If you're like, I want to learn how to read the Bible. I want to learn how to trace keywords. I want to learn how to recognize biblical patterns. Take our skills courses. They're free. Uh, we have free Bible study worksheets. Um, I have a book. It's called Fruitful. Let's see if I can zoom in. Right? It's the essential keys for the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. A lot of you already have a copy. Uh, it would... Do, do me a solid if you have a copy and you've read it. Uh, leave an honest review on uh, Amazon. You can order the book right here on our website. You can also listen to this in podcast format. If you're like, I don't like watching your ugly face, that's okay. You can listen to my ugly voice on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We also have another podcast, a second podcast, um, called Above Reproach Church Podcast. And it's, uh, 
me and my buddy just talk through. <laughs> Ken approves of the book, guys. So leave a review on Amazon. That would let Amazon know like, hey, this book is worth sharing and letting people know about. And you'd get the gospel. Essentially, it's the gospel you're getting in more hands. So um, you can listen to our second church podcast, which is all about church life and how to function as the global church. Stay connected with us. You can give. Uh, when you give, you can give through uh, this right here, abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can donate through debit or credit card right here. You can send a check. Don't make it out to my name or uh, don't make it out to Above Reproach Ministry. Make it out to my name until I work out the whole 501c3 thing, um, if I'm even going that route. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, or buy some church merch to wear on your body. Represent Jesus wherever you go, right? Start conversations between you and other other people. Um, and then my book is really, if you're wondering, like, well, what's the book about? Why would I get it? It's pretty much everything I believe most Christians desperately need to know, but they don't. It's like the, the very essential basics. Um, what the gospel is, who you are in Christ, what your purpose is, God's process for your life, and it's all packaged um, or framed up by the gospel. So go check that out. Even Ken says it's wisdomous. Yeah, that's going to be his review on Amazon. Just sounds wisdomous. Approved by Ken. So you can get a copy on Amazon or right here on the website. And um, Wednesday we'll have a Q&A. Just I want to hear your questions, answer however I can be helpful, clarify some points. Maybe I, I, I misspoke and said something wrong. So that'll be your day to kind of bring some questions forward Wednesday. And then next Monday we'll be right back here um, on part, uh, sheesh, is part eight, episode eight, waiting on the Lord. So, all right, that's it. Go check out the podcast, review that too. That'd be a help. Let's people know it's cool and good and they should listen. And um, that's it. Bye guys. Keep moving towards Jesus and be faithful.